Chris McCausland. Hello. Hello. You grew up in Liverpool, right? West Derby. Yes. And then you moved to Surbiton. Yes. Comedians, right. I would have thought... Comedians who've studied, you'd think they'd do things like, you know, drama or English. Last week on this podcast, we had Patrick Monaghan. He did accountancy. Jean Yashere was in a couple of weeks ago. She did engineering. You did software engineering. That's because deep down we're all either geeks or incredibly boring. <laughs> Comedy is our attempt to make our dull lives slightly more interesting to ourselves and our families and our friends and just be a little bit more, um, I don't know, in, in the spotlight. How did you make the switch? What? You were making websites, right? I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, the world's best stand-up comedians get serious about comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. Well, I was doing websites for a while and then I was, I ended, I was in a call centre and um, and it, oh, it was monkey. It was selling things to people that really had no interest in them whatsoever. What was it you were selling? Okay, well, if we want people to turn this podcast off already, I was <laughs> I, was, I was selling um, employment law manuals, software on how to run your care home, fire risk assessment. Software, software on how to run your care, care home. That's yeah, very specific. It is very specific, isn't it? And wow. Not just any care home. It was. I mean, it wasn't phoning people while they're having their tea, but it was um, phoning people who had absolutely no respect or interest in what you were doing. It paid the bills and it was while I was there I started doing comedy. I had to go, basically. It wasn't really, I know I'm going to be a comedian, I'm going to do comedy. It was, go on, have a go. And uh, it was kind of like a personal dare. And um, the job then became quite convenient because I was finished at five, I was home at ten past. And I had the whole evening to be able to go out and gig. And then the job itself in the call centre, it had its benefits because if you like your job and you've got a job that you enjoy, it's probably quite hard to become a full-time comedian because you've got to get to that point where you've got to give up the job that you like or earn enough money doing comedy to compensate for what you're losing out on the... But I hated my job, so it was all of the motivation to, to gig five or six nights a week at the same time as it and go full-time as quick as I could, really. But also you did very well very quickly, didn't you? Yeah, you, you went all right, yeah. You won the Comedy Store King Gong Show first attempt that you did it. Yeah, all, all that is is it's like X Factor, except the people are far more mental. They give cards to the audience, and then if they don't like you, they put the cards up. When all the three are up, um, you get gonged off. And the people who manage to make five minutes, they get voted for by the audience at the end. It's nothing to base a career on, but when you're starting off, it's a real good experience because it makes you quite hardened to audiences because it's like a bear pit in there. Is <laughs> so, it? yeah. It's good practice. But then the year after, you did something that was potentially career-defining, that you yeah, won the Jungler's Last Laugh competition. Yeah, there's a load of... I think there's a lot more competitions now than there probably was five years ago. There's a lot more comedians now than there was five... I was reading Frank Skinner's book about going back on tour for the first time in ten years, and he was saying in that that back in the late 80s, um, when he was big, the number he gives is about 45 comedians, um, and most of them made it onto the telly. In terms of like Joe Brand and Ari Enfield and Lee Evans and people like that, there weren't a huge amount of comedians making a living out of it, whereas now there's, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And, and part of the reason for that is the comedy courses. There's a comedy courses everywhere now, teaching people to go out there and do their first few gigs. And there's a lot of competitions now as well, which are encouraging people to have a go. So there's a lot of opportunity out there. And um, they're good to do when you start off, I think, the competitions, because it kind of gets people noticing you if you've got some good jokes and... 
just gives you a little bit of experience in terms of dealing with pressure of competitions and there are gigs out there which can be a lot of pressure just in terms of like really not designed for comedy but yet you've got to go out and try and make a, a room full of people that have like corporate gigs or I don't know. So the thing that we haven't mentioned yet and which listening to the podcast people would have no idea but is that you're blind. Yep. Are there other blind stand-ups? I don't think so. I, I haven't come across any. We were talking before about the web development so that this is the reason I stopped doing web development because the websites I've designed look shit. It's because my eyesight deteriorated so um, right because I heard that when you were you went to a school for like partially sighted kids and you used to sell conkers to the blind kids what website have you got <laughs> I just do very exactly. thorough research I was told you do quite thorough research <laughs> I think there's only two people in the world that know that well there's a few more now <laughs> okay is that true yeah that's true <laughs> But my eyesight was deteriorating and I went to a, a school which was um, kind of blind people and, and, and I had very good sight at the time and um, I was eyeing that it was going to come back and bite me on the arse. But um, yeah, it was conquer season. The guy was going out collecting conkers. There were kids that wanted conkers who couldn't get them. I think that's respectful. <laughs> well, but were you honest with it? You didn't give them rubbish ones? I didn't drop the conker in the bag twice and tell them, do you want to pick it out and drop it in again? If that's what you... <laughs> Doom, that's one. Pull it out again. Doom, that's two. I mean, with being a blind comedian, I know you don't make a massive big deal of it in your stand-up you kind of mention it and then and then move on but it must make a big difference to you as a stand-up in terms of just things like you know if you've got a room full of people who aren't necessarily laughing out loud but they're all smiling at you you won't i think i'm dying on my ass because if you've got people laughing at you brilliant and if you've got people smiling they might as well be getting up and walking out because you need that audio feedback which is um but, but you've just got to have the optimistic kind of look and think, well, everybody's enjoying themselves. It's going all right. Is there anything else like that that makes a big difference to you in terms of how you can do in the term, job? In terms of the gigs, no, it's really just... The problems with the gigs are... Somebody shows me up to the microphone, and for that, if people haven't seen me before... And, and I'll be honest, I would be exactly the same if, if I was in the audience. I'd be thinking, oh, God, what the hell have we got to sit through here? And because you, you make assumptions about people, whether it's somebody with a guitar and you think, if you don't like music, you know, I think, oh, God, this is going to be... So I kind of do some jokes about it at the beginning because I've got to, and um, people might necessarily know. I mean, there's a girl with cerebral palsy. She gets shown to the microphone. So, I mean, there could be a range of things that are an issue. So I've got to mention the fact that I'm blind. I do some jokes about it. If you take the mickey out yourself, you can take the mickey out of anything else, really. But but just don't go on about it because you'll bore yourself and the rest of the room. People are genuinely interested to know a little bit about you or a little bit that's different, but they don't want to hear too much. They say, all right, that's it, they move on now. So it's good to mix it up and, and there's more going on in your head than whether you're blind or in a wheelchair or gay or black or a woman or from Devon. Do you know what I mean? There are yeah. people who go on just 20 minutes of farmer jokes and eating bread, oh, give me six and... There's more going on in your head than just your physical or your geographic, do you know what I mean, where where you come from. So mix it up. As well as having made a career out of stand-up, you've also done some acting. You're on a CVV show, Me Too. (laughs) Yeah, this is acting in the very loosest sense of the term. (laughs) This is wearing a big purple coat and saying things in a loud and enthusiastic voice. It was called Me Too on CBB. So if anyone's got little um, two, three, four, five-year-old kids... I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, the premise of the show is kind of to help kids whose parents go to work and they have to stay with the childminder to sort of let them know they're still thinking of them. And you played Rudy the market trader. Yes. Is it fun? It was fun and it was different. And it was... um, I'd never done anything like that before. I've got no ambition to do anything like that again. But I'm glad I did it. We actually did it in 2006. We made so many episodes of it that it will be torturing parents for a long time to come. But... (laughs) 
originally when they asked me, they, what they said was, um, we've got this idea about this um, character in, in the show, we want you to do this kid's show. Are you up for it? And I originally thought, no, I'm not going to... That just sounds... And they said, can you sing as well? And I, I don't know why, I said, yeah. Um, but never say no to anything until you've kind of heard it all out because you might change your mind. And um, I went up there and met them and we just asked around all day. And I said, you want to pay me to do this? And um, so I went up and did it. It was fun. And the kids like it, but the, I can only imagine if you're... I'm not a parent, but I can only imagine it's the kind of thing that would drive you insane when it's on three times a day. What are the other people like? Because I've always wondered with... You know, when you catch bits of kids' telly... Yeah, filthy. Are they? <laughs> they are, I mean, yeah. I mean, I was playing a, a guy that sold fruit and veg on a market stall. Everything was a pound as well. The apples were a pound and a pear was a pound. It was a rip-off. And there was a guy who was a teacher, a character name was Mickey John, and he did it in his Welsh accent for some reason. And um, But he'd always forget his lines. But when he forgot his lines, he'd always turn the end of his line into a filthy joke. I don't know if we're allowed to say on the podcast. No, <laughs> this is marked explicit, so oh, you can say it? what you like. Okay, cool. No, it's just when he came in, like, one of his little um, things was like, hey, Rudy, when is a box not a box? And I'd have to go, oh, I don't know, when's a box not a box? And he'd go, it's... When it's a donkey's cock. <laughs> it make no sense whatsoever. But cut. We, we had a character called um, Granny Murray, who was the kingpin of the whole kind of um, the show. She kind of held the storylines together. And she was actually in a sitcom called Still Game. Some people might know her from that. But um, we get to like 6.30 in the evening. She's got kids. She'd want to get home. And um, I'd mess me lines up or something. Get ready to roll the camera speed. Or, and then she'd lean over and she'd go, Chris, if you fuck this up, I'm going to cut your fucking bollocks off. <laughs> oh, hello, hello, children. <laughs> Straight back into the kids' persona. Do you get reactions from kids? Do you ever run into small children who are like, it's Rudy, it's Rudy? Kids don't recognise me, really. A lot of the parents do at comedy gigs and things like that, and I hear people saying when they go on stage, oh, the kids show and stuff, and they could always come up afterwards, and um, always very drunk. One of the guys came up, it was one of the things that genuinely made me laugh. The point of the show is that you, you drop your kids off at Granny Murray's, and then you go to work. And when you come out, you have a little song on the way to work. Which way do you go to work? Do I go left and do it? All that kind of stuff. And somebody came up and he says, yeah, I've got to ask you, is, uh, is Granny Murray's child minding business? Is it just a front for being a crack dealer? He said, because whenever anyone leaves it out, you've never got a clue which way you're going. <laughs> this was all filmed in Scotland, wasn't it? It was, it was filmed in there. Glasgow. One of the things that amused me about Glasgow, actually, was I was staying in the little part of Glasgow called Jordan Hill and all of the traffic I've never seen this anywhere else in the country all of the um, little beep 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 things when you cross the road they all spoke so when you pressed them they didn't beep they told you but they didn't tell you that the cars had stopped because I'd imagine if you walked out and the car didn't stop then that would be a legal issue so when you press them they say the cars from the left have been indicated to stop <laughs> basically implying it's up to you <laughs> take your chances um, but so you're going up to Edinburgh yes. and you're doing this show Seven Strikes. Seven Strikes, that's the... Tell me about it. It's a stand-up show. It's about a bloke who was struck by lightning seven times. He's in the Guinness Book of Records. His name's Roy Sullivan, so it's a true-life story. But the whole hour isn't going to be solidly about him. As I said before, people get bored of it. It's based around his story, so it's going to start with his story and it's going to go a few different places on the way and it's going to end up talking about the seven times he was struck by lightning. And on its own, it's just an incredible story. He was a park ranger in America and he was struck by lightning when he was... Some of the obvious ones, like at the top of a tower, lookout tower, looking out for... Which you think is a bit weird, isn't it? He's looking out for forest fires started by lightning, but in order to do that, he's had to climb as close to the lightning as he can get, which obviously the days before I was selling my risk assessment software. Um, but one of the times he was working indoors in the office and it came in through the window and hit him on the head and set his head on fire and things like that. There's a lot of comedy in it. And it's about the eventfulness 
purpose of life. I mean, I reckon that that has got to be the most eventful life that there's ever been, really. I've done, like you, I've done my research and I've done all the maths and the odds of being struck by lightning seven times are 2,187,000 quadrillion to one, oh right? <laughs> which is, it's, it's 24 zeros pretty wow. much. And, um, and I did have a joke, which I'm going to tell now, actually, right? My joke was, it's 24 zeros, yeah, which is just zero, 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 just one after another, zero, 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 24 times zero, 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 which if you're British, it's like the Eurovision Song Contest, right? <laughs> and then we came fifth. So, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, yeah, so 10 years of failure and I decided to write a joke that incorporates our failure and we actually do quite well so so that's not going to be in this oh. show so. well I'm glad you haven't wasted the joke <laughs> no we, we, we got, we got it. it out yeah <laughs> you, well you've had some quite eventful things you tell me about this right you burnt your face oh Jesus Christ on <laughs> go on I'm not even going to tell the story you need to you, tell it you, yeah I'd love to know what website this is. People have been updating my Wikipedia. It wasn't just page. one. No, I, I talk about this in my stand-up as well. I Basic, I was lighting a cigarette from a George Foreman grill and then shut it on my head. Because uh, when, when you're drunk and you come home from the pub and... Um, it was actually a whole series of things. I came off from the pub, realised that I didn't have a lighter. And so I was kind of looking around for things to use and, and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't have a cooker at the time, so I was improvising. And I tried the George Foreman grill. And um, you've got to get your head inside the thing. That's the problem with it is... And I knocked the lid down on the top of my head and burnt my face on the grill. <laughs> Did you have lines running down your cheek? <laughs> like I've been sunbathing behind some tiny railings. But the thing is, is that if you blister yourself or you burn yourself, you don't notice the damage straight away. It doesn't really... You go, oh, all right, and you kind of brush it off. And I tried a range of things. I tried... I, this isn't even a word of a line. I don't say this in the stand-up because it's just too... It sounds unbelievable. Um, but I used a steam iron and... <laughs> I was staring into the bottom of the steam iron, sucking furiously on my cigarette when it started to auto-steam. <laughs> and it didn't get me. I pulled it away in time, but it just shows you the, the, the common level of common sense that I, I tried a light bulb. Um, I even at one point was contemplating if I could get the empty plastic shaft of a biro pen and force the cigarette into one end, I could then lower the cigarette down to the element at the bottom of the kettle and turn... <laughs> Inspired. And then I realised that why would I have any pens? So we didn't. But yeah, I. Did you get to smoke your cigarette no, in, the I didn't in the end? Oh no. man! So, After all that effort. Yeah, I caused myself injury a few different ways. I I ended up in hospital once falling out of bed. Which, You're joking. I, I bought one. I lived in a tiny little flat in London. I bought one of those. Um, it was a double bed, but it was in Argos. It looked like a really good idea. It was like the top part of a bunk bed. But a double bed. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, okay. and it was it was hot one night, and I pushed the quilt off to one side, and there's a bar running around this bed to stop you falling out. And um, it sounds really hideous, doesn't it? But I pushed my quilt off me and pushed it to one side. Little did I know, creating a small but effective ramp. And then in the middle of the night, I just flung myself over to get some cold mattress and went shooting off the edge of this <laughs> ramp. Smashed my ankles on the table and my head on every rung of the ladder that led up to it. <laughs> Anyway, that wasn't on your website, was it? <laughs> there was something else that I read, but uh, I don't know whether or not this is true. Did you did you apply to be a spy with MI5? Yeah. Is this true? Yeah, this is true. I got to the last 30 out of 3,000. That's unreal. Yeah. It was for MI5 and um, 
basically part of the job, right, was um, the guy said to me, because you, you have to go through so many stages of where they whittle it down and so on. Part of the job in two or three years' time will be running agents, right? Now, you think of an agent being like James Bond. Right? That's yeah. not what it is. Running agents means dealing with members of the public who are not affiliated with, like, the Ministry of Defence, just members of the public who, who volunteer information, right? So you have to meet up with them in an area that's been secured and you have to meet with them and trade information or get information off them. And he said, now, you, you're somewhat of a security risk because like, you're blind and that's supposed to be a security risk for us. And I said, well, what's more undercover than a blind guy going to the pub for a pint? And he went, yeah, I think you've got a point. <laughs> and, then he, and then he wrote something on this page. I can only imagine it said more blind people. Um, so then what happened? The round which I, I went out on, but it was um, you get given an in, like an in-tray and you have to go through all of the pages in it, which uh, photographs, um, diagrams, memos, anything, anything at all that has been put in your in-tray. You have to identify what the immediate threat is to the security of London, maybe, or the country. You have to identify that and then you have to kind of have a meeting and get the surveillance and all that kind of stuff. And so it's like a proper mock kind of doing the work there. And I did that. And, and normally if you've got a job or if you're doing an exam or something like that, and if you're blind, you have, to, you have to work twice as hard to get things done in a certain amount of time. But sometimes people give you a little bit of leeway. If you're doing an exam, sometimes they give you 50% extra time because the reading, the processing, the information takes a little bit longer. And um, so I failed that on my ability to sift the vast amount of information and complete a concise report and identify the threat in a limited period of time because they didn't give me any extra time. And I can fully appreciate that and understand that because you don't want Waterloo to get blown up. People go, well, what happened? Oh, well, the guy was blind. We have to give him an extra half a day. So I can understand that. Fair play to them. I'd rather live in a safe country than have me trying to stop our, our city getting blown up. So. All right, just before, um, I'm going to give out your MySpace and say where your show is going to be on and stuff. But I wanted to do something with you, yes. if that's all right. So in Me Too, you play a market trader. Yeah. And I didn't have time to go down to an actual market. So I got Dave Berry, who's XFM's own resident Cockney, to just say some stuff in the style of a market trader down the market. And then you have to see if you can decipher what he's saying. Are you up for that? I'm up for that. All right, okay. let's go. All right. This is the first one. Lovely apples, you your red apples, 50 be a pound. Get your red apples, 50 be a pound. <laughs> Let's have a listen. Lovely apples. Juicy red apples. 50p a pound. All that beginning bit I just got is get ya. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I still think. That's one out of one. All right, second one. Plums! Plums! I'm a lovely red plums! Plums, plums. plums. (laughs) Let's have a listen. Plums. Plums. There we go. I've got lovely ripe plums. <laughs> okay, one more. One more. Two out of two so far. There are two cardinal seeds for which all others spring. Impatience, get impatience, in laziness. Was that the same bloke or was that the religious mother outside? <laughs> it was a slight red herring. There are Do two kinds. There are two kinds of hope from which we all spring. Or something. <laughs> Do you know that's not bad? Listen. There are two cardinal sins from which all others spring: impatience and laziness. Franz Kafka. It was a Franz Kafka quote. I thought I'd throw it in. But actually, I think you dealt with it very, very well. So, Chris, your show in Edinburgh is going to be on in the Pleasance. You've got a bunch of previews before then. Yes. And what was the best place for dates? Is it your MySpace? Do you know, I'm so lazy. Should I just give up my phone number? People can phone me. Um, ChrisMcCausland.com. With no E in the M-C-C-A-U-S-L-A-N-D. Dot com, so chrismacausland.com or info at chrismacausland.com. Email me and I will put the dates up. And I've got quite a lot of London previews and um, and then it's just Edinburgh for the whole of August, really. 
And you're in the Pleasance, aren't you? With your yes. Show. Chris McCausland, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much, Marcia. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes, Yes, marsha.com forward slash off the mic.